0: conservative and even reformed ministers today, you could quickly be led to believe that the greatest trials that are facing the church today consists of social ills, Uh, things like abortion and an unjust criminal system, poverty or inequality between men and women in the world or sexual dysphoria, or the overcrowding of our prisons, or violence, immigration, illegal drug trafficking. These and other problems are highlighted very often now, set before churches as the real problems that we are facing in our world, and that if churches are going to do the work that we're called to do, we have got to engage those issues head on as a matter of priority, there are all kinds of programs that have been developed that churches are encouraged to adopt in order to address these social ills, always with the encouragement that we need to help meet people's real needs. We need to get on the front lines and care for them in the things that are crushing them all around us. Well, there's no doubt that God's people should be involved in helping. People in the world with all of these kinds of issues in fact God's people have done that throughout history Christians and churches are the ones that developed the first hospitals that were open to the public in this land many of the educational institutions that were formed in the history of this country and other countries in the West were done so by those who knew God loved God and were seeking to honor God through education as followers of Christ We should never back away from any of the problems in the world. We should never close our eyes to those who are suffering in this world from any ills that might come in society. However, in our zeal to see righteousness prevail in our world, we must never lose sight of the only way that righteousness ever will prevail in this world. Society will change. When people change. And people will change when they are confronted with the reality of God and His grace and power. When God's grace and power transforms them through the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. It is the gospel who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and why that matters. This is the message that God has entrusted to the church. This is what we are stewards of. This is what he has given to us to make known so that the greatest problems in this world can be genuinely, completely overcome. It's the spread of the gospel that is our major mission because it is this gospel that can only meet the greatest need that people have. It's not more money that they need. It's not physical health primarily that they need. It's not a good job mainly that they need or sexual health that they need. It's not to be freed from various addictions to food or drugs or booze or pornography that they need above anything else. All of those things are important and have their place. But none of those things is ultimately important. What is of utmost importance for every person in the world, which means for you and me, everyone in this room, is to come to know God, to be reconciled to our Creator, the one from whom we have come, to whom we are going, before whom one day every one of us will stand to give an account for our lives. Our greatest need is to have our sins forgiven. Crimes we've committed against our Creator. Our greatest need is to be born of His Spirit. To be born again, made new by His power. Our greatest need is to come to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. So no matter what your situation, no matter what you're facing, no matter how pressing your practical challenges are, your greatest need is God. And the only way that you will get God and be reconciled to God is by believing the gospel. Therefore, the greatest good that we can ever do for anyone is to teach them the gospel and to persuade them to believe it. And that's what we want to be and do as a church. And we would love to have the opportunity uh, with you here this morning who are not believing the gospel. It would be a, a great honor for us to have the opportunity to explain to you the truth about your existence before your Creator and what God has done to bring you into the world and what God has revealed that He is doing to bring the world to a conclusion. And how your sin has separated you from God. And if you're left to your sin and you have to answer for your sin again, by yourself, alone, then you will have to stand before God and be consigned to everlasting punishment because of your sin. But Christ came, Jesus came, God sent his son into the world so that sinners like you and me can be reconciled to him. We can have our sin placed on him and we can be brought together together In a relationship of love, forgiveness, joy because of what God has accomplished in His Son. We'd love to talk to you about that. That's the greatest news in the world. It's why this church exists. It's what we're commissioned to make known to people that are in our circle of influence. It's why we do what we do. It's why we take the Bible so seriously because it's in the Bible that we learn this message of good news. The Apostle Paul understood that. He believed that. That's why he writes the letter that he does to the church at Rome that we are focusing on now over these last few weeks, in the next several weeks. In this letter to the Romans, we see him setting the gospel out, the gospel that highlights the grace of God to sinners. Rome was the capital city of the whole Roman Empire. For all of its greatness... It was a city that was racked with all kind of social ills. In fact, there were so many bizarre, unhelpful, wicked things going on in Rome. If Paul wanted to, he could have just written a social manifesto to the church to address all those ills. And yet, he didn't do that. We read Romans and we see what Paul does as he sets forth the gospel. Rome had about 400,000 people in its borders when Paul was writing the letter to it. And 30% of those inhabitants were slaves. Another 30% were former slaves. And it was only about 40% that were truly free-born Roman citizens. And yet you read the letter of Romans and Paul doesn't say anything about slavery. He doesn't write about how to overcome the horror of slavery. Rome was filled with sexual perversion, with all kinds of sexual idolatry and lust and wicked sexual practices. And yet, Paul doesn't give instruction on how to overcome those sexual perversions in this letter. The city was filled with violence in its gladiatorial games and in its circuses, where both people and animals were used for blood sport, for entertainment. And yet Paul doesn't even mention that in his letter. Rather, what Paul does in the letter of Romans is set forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. He reminds the people in the church of what Jesus has done and why that is significant for them and how The accomplishments of Christ are all that we need to make us right with God and to live well in this world. That this is the message that we must proclaim to the world. We've seen this already in our first two studies of Romans and we're going to see it again today as we continue to work our way through these opening verses of Romans chapter 1, the last part of the introduction that is before us today. What we're going to see is the gospel was the center of Paul's own sense of identity. And because of that, the gospel shaped the way that Paul related to people. Our text this morning is Romans 1, verses 8 through 15. Romans 1, verses 8 through 15. I encourage you to get a copy of God's word and open there so you can have it in front of you. We're just going to walk our way through what he writes in these verses. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided, you'll find that on page 939. 939. So you follow along as I read God's word Allowed for us. Romans 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, by both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. In these eight verses we see how closely Paul identifies with the gospel that he is commending. If you look at verse 8, you see that he mentions immediately Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ that he offers up thanks to them who Christ is, what he's done, why that matters. Look at verse 9. He refers to the gospel specifically, the gospel of God's Son. He serves God in this gospel. Look at verse 15. He says, I want to come to you. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. The gospel wasn't just information to Paul. It wasn't just a a, a, a gathering of facts. It wasn't an add-on to his life. This message was at the center of how he understood himself. This message had changed his life, reoriented him, so that everything now in Paul's life is different than it was before the gospel came to him. This is what I want us to see this morning as we look at these verses I've just read. We see it in Paul, and it needs to be true of us, that the gospel reorders our relationships if we're embracing it as we ought, if it's coming to us as it ought, the gospel will reorder our relationships. Let's see first how this is made evident in Paul's prayer. Verses 8, 9, and 10, he speaks about how he prays for that church in Rome. And in these verses, we see that the gospel informs our prayers. It does so by making us pray with thanksgiving. You see that in verse 8? Our prayers become thankful. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Paul is grateful for them. These are Christians. These are brothers and sisters. These are people who just like him have come to trust Jesus Christ and they've been translated from that kingdom of darkness and sin into the kingdom of God's own son. And so he's writing to those with whom he has everything in common because he has the gospel in common with them. They became Christians the same way that he did through Jesus Christ. He's specifically grateful for them because their faith has become well known. Do you see that? Lots of opportunities obviously had come to the church at Rome for them to display the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel and how they treated people. People from around the world came to Rome. It was a saying that all roads lead to rome and so christians there became notable making an impact on the folks who traveled into and through rome as they manifested the gospel of god's grace to them their testimony went out the testimony of their faith in christ in such a way paul says it's being proclaimed to the whole world These were not secret believers in Rome. These were not reticent Christians. These were not people who were reserved in their faith. When other Christians traveled through Rome and visited the church, they must have been welcomed warmly. So that as they went back to their homelands or other places, they carried the testimony of faith from this church. When merchants came to Rome, as happened every day, and had to engage in business with Christian merchants from Rome in this church, they were treated fairly. They weren't cheated. They didn't have to keep checking and double checking to make sure they were paid what they were owed. And that testimony must have gone out with them as they returned to their homelands about these Roman merchants who were followers of Christ. You don't have to keep checking your bag with them. When people in Rome had difficult needs and fell in hard times and it became known to the church and the church intervened and went to them to care for them they did so with mercy they did so with love and kindness so that those who had been down and out and who'd been ministered to by members of this church could say those people those people are merciful they're kind their faith made an impact on people not just in rome but through rome around the world Brothers and sisters, this is precisely what Jesus tells us should happen. This is exactly what he says about the way we are called to live as his people. You remember the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus in that sermon said this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to the whole, into the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It is a part of what Christ has designed for us to live as gospel people, to do business as people who answer to a higher authority than the IRS. To be neighbors in such a way that we love the way we've been loved. You see, how we're we to live in our neighborhoods and our communities, it ought to be shaped by the gospel. As Christians, when we think about the people who live next door to us, across the street from us, or down the road from us, we should think about them as we being ambassadors of Christ to them. When people come into a gathering like this to worship with us, brothers and sisters, Grace, family, we should be welcoming the way that Christ has welcomed us. We should be helpful the way that Christ has helped us. When you go to work and you do your job, you should do your job as to the Lord. Not complaining, not griping, not seeing how much time you can shave off the end of the day. No, you're a gospel person. You belong to Jesus. So you do your work not primarily for a paycheck, not primarily for a supervisor. You do your work for Christ. And as we live this way, the testimony of our faith will go out. We do what we do because of Christ. And as we live for Christ, people are blessed, people are helped, and we become increasingly gracious. And so our faith becomes increasingly obvious. And when we see other Christians living out their faith, it should fill us with gratitude to God because we know that they are this way because of God. And that should make our prayers thankful. It did for Paul. As he contemplated these people, most of them he'd never met, but he heard about their faith and he heard how their faith was being proclaimed. He says, thank God. God, I thank you for these my brothers and sisters and the way their faith is testifying to the gospel. The gospel also makes our prayers earnest, thankful and earnest. This is verse 9. He says, God's my witness whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his son. Paul invokes God. It's it's like he's bringing in this, uh, this vow because they couldn't tell what was going on inside of Paul. They didn't know Paul, most of them. Paul says, I'm I'm calling God to testify that what I'm about to say is true. He knows what's my secret thought. He knows what's inside of me, the sincerity and earnestness of my prayers. So he refers to his service to God as carried out with his spirit in the gospel. That is, in his inner life. Not just mere performance of duties, external responsibilities, but inner devotion, inner delight. And it is all centered on the gospel. His relationship to God and service to God is in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So again, we come back to this sense of identity that we see working in Paul. He can't conceive of himself outside of what God has done for him in Christ. The gospel makes his prayers for the Romans earnest. He makes them makes him thankful for them in prayer. Thirdly, it also makes his prayers regular. He says, without ceasing at the end of verse 9, I mention you, verse 10, always in my prayers. In other words, he thinks about them and he prays for them unceasingly. They have a regular part in his prayers, a regular place in his prayers. Now, what does Paul mean by this? You read this, you think of Paul walking around with his eyes closed all the time, always praying. Well, that's not what he means. He's not suggesting that he gets on his knees and closes his eyes all the time, always praying. That's not what he means by praying without ceasing. But rather, it's this attitude and understanding, this thoughtfulness about the people in Rome. He's describing how those people are regularly on his mind. He's repeatedly thinking about him, repeatedly praying for them. This tells us something about the way Paul lived his life. He was concerned about the advance of the gospel throughout the world. And so as he prayed for the advance of the gospel throughout the world, the most strategic city in the world that had a beachhead for the gospel would inevitably come to mind. And so he thinks about how's the gospel going to get west? How's it going to go to Spain? How's it going to go beyond the Mediterranean? There's Rome. There's Rome. There's a church in Rome. It's a place from which the gospel can continue to spread, And so he prays for that church. It was the impact of the gospel on his own life that caused him to pray regularly for those who were instrumental in spreading that gospel. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you something just real plainly. Is that the way you pray? Do you regularly pray about the advance of the gospel in the world? Do you have people or mission outposts or churches that you pray for because of their strategic opportunity to advance the gospel in the world? Do you? Every Wednesday night, we gather here for prayer. And we have printed up specific things to pray for and included in those lists are specific people and outposts and churches, ministries that are instrumental in getting the gospel throughout. world let me encourage you to pray like paul as you let the gospel more and more shape your own identity by praying for those who are instrumental in spreading it pray without ceasing earnestly in verse 10 we see a fourth way that his prayers were impacted by the gospel his prayers were hopeful you see this latter part of verse 10 it says asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul's not hesitant to let his request be made known to God. He wants to go to Rome. He'd wanted to go to Rome for a long time. But in order for him to go to Rome, in order for God to direct him to Rome, he knows that he must pray by God's will. You see, I want to come to you somehow by God's will. This is precisely how we're to pray. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. In fact, this morning, if you pray the Lord's Prayer, that's how you prayed. Your will be done. It's right for us to tell the Lord, express to the Lord, here's the desires of my heart. This is what I think would be good. This is what I want according to your will. Your will be done. Paul prayed this prayer for years. And in Acts chapters 22 through 28, you can read how God finally answered these prayers. Not on the timetable that Paul had. He wanted to get to Rome much sooner than he did. But God answered his prayers, but he did it in an unusual way. Paul wanted to go to Rome, so Paul gets arrested on trumped-up charges and has to work his way through the system to appeal to Caesar. And so he's held in prison for two years. He wants to go to Rome. He's praying to go to Rome. And God gets him to Rome by bringing letting false accusations come against him, letting him be wrongly imprisoned, putting him on a ship, winds up getting wrecked, and he has to be rescued. He has a a snake bite him that should have killed him. But he gets to Rome. If you keep reading Acts, God answers the prayer, not the way he would have expected or perhaps preferred, but nevertheless, he answered. Because he was committed to the gospel, his prayers were informed by the gospel. His devotion to the gospel caused him to pray thankfully, earnestly, regularly, and hopefully. The gospel should inform our prayers. But secondly, in these verses, we see the gospel also shapes our purposes, our longings. Verses 11, 12, and 13, Paul desperately wanted to go to Rome. He says in verse 11, I long to see you, verse 13, I have often intended to come to you. If you go to the last part of the letter in chapter 15, verse 23, he tells us there, I have intended to come to you. I've wanted to come to you for years, many years. We don't know how long, how many years, but we know it had been a long time. He even made some plans to get to Rome. He says, I intended to come. That word intended carries with it the idea of of making plans beginning the early work of tentatively wanting to see something come about. But he was always fully aware that his prayers, his plans were subject to God's providence. And so we see that parenthesis in verse 13. You see that? But thus far, I've been prevented. I've intended to come to you, but thus far, I've been prevented. I wanted to, intended to, prevented. How was Paul prevented? Well, there could have been a variety of ways, but he tells us in chapter 15 of this letter some specific reasons why he was prevented. If you look at chapter 15, he says in verse 19, says, "Just here's what he was doing. It says, "...from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. In verse 22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. What was it that kept him from getting there? Doing what he had to do in the face of opportunities and responsibilities that were pressing upon him where he was. Paul was appointed by Jesus Christ to be an apostle to the Gentiles. The most strategic beachhead for the gospel among the Gentiles was in the city of Rome in that church. So he desired to go there. He made plans to go there. And even though his plans and desires were well motivated, they had not been fulfilled by the time that he wrote this letter. He goes on to describe the reason that he wanted to see the Christians in Rome. Verses 11 and 12, he wanted to bless them and he wanted to be blessed by them. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And then quickly, verse 12, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He wanted to impart some spiritual gift to them. He wanted to bless them. Most likely, Paul is not referring here to the spiritual gifts that he describes as the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit himself distributing sovereignly as he deems in 1 Corinthians 12. Or even in those few verses in Romans 12, when he describes the different kinds of gifts that the Christians in the church at Rome had and were utilizing, he was encouraging them to utilize even more. He's probably not talking about a specific spiritual gift like that. The reason I say that is because he says some spiritual gift. It's indefinite. Do you see that? It's like there's a more generic idea that he has in mind. And his specific desire is that they might be strengthened by this. The reason I've come to that conclusion is by the further insight we get in the way that Paul elaborates this desire in verses 12 and 13. He says in verse 13 that he wants to be blessed by them in that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. No doubt he's thinking here of the harvest of unconverted Romans being converted, becoming Christians. That type of harvest would have certainly fit what he's saying. But no doubt also he's referring to the growth and maturity of those Christians who are already in the faith. Those who are already believers. We can see this by comparing this language to what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1 verses 22 through 25 where he uses the same type of metaphor of harvest or fruitfulness he says in philippians 1 22, if i am to live in the flesh that means fruitful labor for me harvest fruitful same word yet what what shall i choose i cannot tell i'm hard pressed between the two am i going to die in prison am i going to be set free it's a difficult prospect in front of me to choose between the two, he says. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, he says, I know that I will remain, continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith. What will be more fruitful? Your progress and joy in the faith. What's the harvest that he wants to see among the believers in Rome? Their progress and joy in the faith. He wants to see them grow in the gospel. They were brought to faith by the gospel and they will grow in faith by that same gospel. When he sees that happening, he also is blessed along with those who are being blessed through his ministry. This is verse 12. He says that is that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. The source of encouragement is faith. His faith encourages them. He anticipates their faith encouraging him. This is the effect that results when Christians get together thinking as those who have been purchased by Jesus Christ and wanting to bless one another. It's the way it always works. When you go to minister... The gospel to other believers you help them to see some aspect of Christ's person and work that perhaps they haven't seen as clearly as they need to see or forgotten about or lost sight of you help them remember his provisions for them the help he gives in their time of need I know you've experienced this brothers and sisters maybe you've gone to a hospital room to to pray for a sister or a brother who's laid up there with difficulties and you're purpose and plan and going is is to read the Bible to them, to pray for them. You want to encourage them, and yet you walk out back toward your car thinking, Man, I'm the one who's been blessed. I, I'm the one who's been greatly encouraged here. Haven't you seen that happen time and again, where you go to minister and you walk away knowing that you are the one who's been ministered to? Listen to what John Calvin says about this. He says what Paul says he he means What he says here is that there is none so void of gifts in the church of Christ who cannot in some measure contribute to our spiritual progress. Every Christian has opportunity and ability by the Spirit of God to encourage us in our own spiritual progress. We gain some insight into the way that the gospel shaped Paul's purposes and longings as we look at his Desires to go to Rome. They were right. They were God honoring desires, but the Lord didn't grant them for many years. And how did Paul understand those God honoring desires not being granted? That the Lord was punishing him? God was upset with him? God was not going to give him things that were good because he's withholding something from him? Had he failed in some way? No. No. He submitted to the providence of his good God. He knew he was simply being prevented from carrying out his plans for reasons that God deemed best. As we heard in verses 19 through 22 of chapter 15 that I just read, Paul's inability to do what he planned to do, what he wanted to do, did not keep him from doing what he could do. Not at all. In fact, it was because he was faithful in fulfilling the responsibilities in front of him that he could fulfill that he was kept busy preaching, too busy, preaching throughout all the eastern Mediterranean region so that he didn't have time or opportunity to travel west to Rome and beyond as he desired. Here's the principle that we need to learn from this as we think about the way Paul handled his desires motivated by the gospel. Desires not granted because of the providence of God. Line up your desires with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so love Christ that you will love what honors Him. And be willing to have your God-glorifying longings and your plans to fulfill them expressed to God. Make them, don't hold back, but don't pursue plans that you think are good at the expense of clear responsibilities the Lord places in front of you right now. This is a good desire. I know this would honor God. So if I have to disobey God and neglect what he's told me to do over here in order to obey God over here, I'll just do it. No, no, a thousand times no. I once had a student, a seminary student, in one of the classes I was teaching on, on pastoral theology Who came and and as I got to know him, he said, you know, I want to be a pastor. He was kind of in later in life, not not real old, maybe in his late 30s. And so he said, I just believe God wants me to be a pastor. I want to preach the gospel. I want to see people come to know Christ. All wonderful, good goals. Right, God honoring, God glorifying goals. But as I got to know him, the story came out that he had been in business. And had had a rough go in business and had failed at business and walked away from a business owing $80,000 in debt. And so he said, I'm just going to become a pastor. Good goal. Not God honoring. People have $80,000 that he owes them. But because his good goal over here seems so wonderful to him, he assumed that it was okay to just let go. Of other things you see—that's the wrong way to think. Paul didn't do that. He's in the Eastern Mediterranean, in the region of Macedonia. He's he's able to go to Greece. He's able to preach the gospel in places all along that region, always thinking about the West. I could get to Rome. I want to go to Rome, but he didn't forsake what needed to be done here, so that he could fulfill a good, good God honoring desire. On his own timetable. Being devoted to the gospel will shape your plans and purposes. You'll want to serve the gospel in every way. But, brothers and sisters, do not forsake any responsibility you have as a follower of Christ, even to see good purposes fulfilled. Here's a simple way to think about that. As a Christian, it is never right to do wrong in order to do right it's never right to do wrong in order to do right oh but this is such a good thing yeah but if you have to do a wrong thing to get there it's not right let the gospel of jesus shape your purposes and your plans as well as the way that you pursue those plans well the gospel informs our prayers it shapes our purposes thirdly we see the gospel orders our priorities. Verses 14 and 15. It puts us under a sense of obligation. Do you see this? What Paul says in verse 14? I am under obligation, both to Greeks, barbarians, wise, and the foolish. Paul saw himself as a debtor. That's the language that he actually uses here. I am indebted to people. The Greeks, those Greek speaking people, barbarians, which would be the non Greek speaking Gentiles. We could divide them maybe into more sophisticated and cultured class of Gentiles and those who are less so. Paul says, I'm indebted to all of them. As an apostle, he was called to get the gospel to the Gentiles specifically. And in many ways, that's unique to Paul. You and I are not called to be apostles. There are no more apostles today. God has not commissioned us specifically the way that he did the apostles in the New Testament to carry out their responsibilities in specific spheres. So we can't exactly say what Paul says here. However, we can and should understand the sense of stewardship that is reflected in Paul's testimony here. We should feel what he felt because we possess the same gospel he possessed. and We've been entrusted with it. To possess the gospel is to own the obligation that goes with having it. It would be like discovering that you have a terminal cancer. And then the cure for that cancer was brought to you and you took it and applied it to yourself and you were cured and you have the cure entrusted to you. Wouldn't there be a sense of obligation? Could you be content to just go home and say, man, I'm so glad I'm cured? When you live among people that are dying of the very same malady that was killing you? I mean, just common sense, common grace, common love would motivate us to say, no, I've been healed by this. It's been entrusted to me. Others need to be healed by this. I must, I'm obligated, I'm in debt to go and make it known to them. So much greater way, brothers and sisters, we've been given the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's forgiven our sins. He's shed His love abroad in our hearts. He's saved us from His wrath against our sins that we deserve He's reconciled us to Himself and He's done it all through His Son. And He's given us His Son. How can we dare, how can we sleep at night satisfied to just enjoy the blessings and the privileges that have come to us in the gospel without that sense of obligation to make this gospel known. The gospel that saved you can save others as it has been freely given to us, we must freely share it with others. We're obligated to do so. Making Christ known should be a priority of our lives. But not only does the gospel make us obligated to share it, we see in verse 15, it also makes us eager to share it. I'm eager, he says, to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. It's a message that must be shared. To know the gospel is to want others to know the gospel. The message is such that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that if you really know that, if you really have experienced that, you cannot be content to just kind of let it be for you. To truly know the gospel is to be eager to see that gospel come to other people as well. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul says he's eager to preach the gospel to people he's just described as having a very lively faith, a faith that is being made known throughout the whole world. Don't they already have the gospel? Yes. Do they really need the gospel to be preached to them? Yes. Here's a wonderful lesson for us. The gospel is for Christians. Christians need the gospel. Unbelievers need the gospel to become Christians. When Christians by the gospel become Christians, they continue to need the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I need Jesus Christ, His life of obedience to God's commandments, His death on the cross to pay for sin, as much today as that moment I first trusted Him. We need Him. We need to grow in our awareness of what God has given us in Christ. We need to go deeper in the gospel. We will never outgrow it. You'll never graduate from the gospel. God help you if you ever do. We must recognize what we have in Christ is what we need day by day. And so, yes. The gospel needs to be proclaimed to us. It needs to be taught to us. We need to remind every believer of Christ. Help one another remember what we have in Christ. Do you know a brother or sister in Christ who's discouraged because of the sin that remains within? She just seems like she can't put it to death. I'm not talking about she's signed a peace treaty with it and she's tried to figure out a way to I'm just going to live this way, kind of religious, kind of Christian. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody who's brokenhearted. They say, you know, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, i drawn to them. I hate it. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to live. I don't know how to get better. I just want to quit. God must hate me. What does that sister need? She needs somebody to remind her that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Keep trusting Jesus Christ. Keep fighting against sin and do so not so that God will love you. Do so being overwhelmed with the reality that because of Christ, God does love you. He's for you. Preach the gospel to each other in that situation. When it seems like you're out of resources and you can't see any way that you can make it physically, financially, relationally, emotionally, whatever it is. Remember the gospel. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That's the gospel. Did Christ die for you? Did God withhold this best from you? If God didn't spare His best, then you can be sure He'll give you everything you need. And He will not leave you without what you need. When it feels like God's far away, and you think, I just feel cold spiritually, emotionally. What do you need? You need the gospel. You need to hear what Paul writes in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the gospel. I need to get that inside of my thinking. I need to get that into my emotions. There are going to be times when I'm going to need you to help me with that. And you're going to need to help others with that. You're going to need to preach the gospel to one another so that we might grow in our appreciation of it, be strengthened by what God's done for us in his Son. Jesus changes everything. When you become a Christian, your whole life is reordered. The gospel reorders your relationships it reorders your prayers your purposes your plans your priorities so brothers and sisters take the gospel seriously let's commit ourselves to growing in our self-awareness and self-identity as gospel people and being committed as those purchased by christ reconciled to god to make this gospel known to spread this gospel to one another and to unbelievers. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that we have a savior. That Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to make us right with you. Help us to remember that and believe it. And set us free. Set us free so that our identity will be caught up, bound up in what you have accomplished for us through the life and death and resurrection of your son. I pray for unconverted people here today that you'd reveal Jesus in them and draw them to yourself. Magnify your grace in their lives. Do it for Jesus' sake. Amen.